And welcome to Night Cheese. This is Steven. And I'm Tim. And I'm Jared. Thanks for joining us this week uh, as we continue our uh, dive into Black History Month. Uh, we've got a double shot for you tonight, so to speak, as we're going to be looking at Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Moonlight. Um, both of those films available on Netflix right now. And uh, we want to thank you again for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the discussion on One Night in Miami. Um, have you guys been since then uh, fe- feeling upbeat, I hope? <laughs> well, I was until I watched these films. No, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, foreshadowing. Tonight is going to be a little low energy, if not downright depressing. Um, you know, that that is the problem when we try to schedule these things and all of us collectively don't have a firm grasp on the emotional content of them all. You know, I, I knew – there would be like, you know, like one night in Miami, like that, I wouldn't necessarily call that a happy film, but there was a sense of at least temporary triumph in it. I think, you know, because each character was kind of coming to terms with, with making a stand for who they are and, 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 and for uh, black culture and things like that. This, this week though, (laughs) um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of the other side of that. You, You get pieces of it, but, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like reaching the top of a roller coaster. It's like you're only there for a second and then it just plunges down. Um, it does. I will say though, like in a weird way, I I don't know. I think because the material is so heavy that I just like, I've shot the other way to where I'm like, I've got energy and I'm amped up for this. Good. I don't know. I don't know why <laughs> we're going to need you. It makes absolutely no sense at all, which is probably in line with most of things that I'm, associated with but just if that makes well if that keeps anyone from tuning out i'll tell you what i'll give i'll give you a choice jared you can pick the pop culture reference for me um i was thinking between ghostbusters 2 villain or the venom symbiote in terms of feeding off negativity giving you uh giving you power so um i'll make either of those references later on in the episode in terms of my own personal nerdiness, if that, if that helps. I'll have to, yeah, I'll, I'll have to think on it though. Okay. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> um, but to feed into that more, I will say, um, and if you guys follow us on Instagram or on Facebook, you would have seen this already. There is some supplemental material. If you are interested, uh, into, to dive deeper into the events of, uh, one night in Miami, uh, there are two, um, two documentaries available on Netflix right now, one called who killed Malcolm X, which is about five or six episodes. And it's the story of a man who's trying to uncover the uh, true nature of the events of Malcolm X's assassination. Um, He has a lot of questions and theories as to like whether or not the men convicted for it were really the men who shot him. Um, What were who, you know, who was responsible? um, How deep, does that go? And I got to say, this goes so, to, you know, it was so long ago when he was killed. It's, it's been over, you know, 50 years now. And um, so he actually, I will say this much about that series. A couple of episodes in, he actually gets access through the Freedom of Information Act to um, FBI files on, you know, documentation of how they were. Um, uh, surveilling Malcolm X and their fears on, you know, 
foreshadowing into one of the movies we're going to be talking about later in the month, but they use the phrase a black Messiah, um, that, that, um, they, they considered something a threat that needed to be neutralized at any cost. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot, there's a lot going on there that, I mean, I, and you know, I'd always heard people just casually say, oh, the government had him killed or, you know, the nation of Islam had him killed or, or whatever it was. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that I brushed it off as conspiracy theory. I just don't think I was invested enough in it to have an opinion. But between that and the other documentary that I'd like to plug, it's called The Two Killings of Sam Cooke. Um, I don't know how familiar everyone else is. I know I wasn't super familiar with the story of Sam Cooke up until One Night in Miami beyond knowing he's the guy who recorded A Change Is Gonna Come um, and that he was important in the civil rights movement from a, from an artist's perspective. Um, just how important he was and just how important it was um, – his reputation was to the black community and his association with Malcolm X um, put a target on his back as well. Uh, and they really invest. He was, he was murdered later that year after the events of one night in Miami, um, which is interesting because Jim Brown is a part of that documentary, the Sam Cooke documentary, the real Jim Brown, not uh, Aldous Hodge. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he tells stories about that night. That that are that's covered in one night in Miami, and and um, I gotta say it's a very suspicious th- series of events that went down that led to the demise of both of those men, and it really has me amped for watching Judas and the Black Messiah when we cover it, um, which was the story of Fred Hampton, who was a Black Panther uh, community leader who was um, well. From what I've read, anyways, it sounds like his death really sounded a lot like Breonna Taylor's. Um, I'll say that. Um, obviously, Hampton was a little bit more of a public was a public figure and stuff. Said so that there's there's more to it than that, but but uh, so it's not a one to one comparison. But anyway, it's got me really intrigued for for the next thing. But we're getting yeah. ahead of ourselves. I just wanted to let our listeners know <laughs> that those uh, additional documentaries are out if you've got time on your hands or if that that subject matter interests you. Um it's it's really it's really interesting. Um so yeah, but tonight um we'll be discussing Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Moonlight. So well, let's start with Ma Rainey, if that's cool with everybody, and that's the one I wrote down first. Um, so, um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom um, was—that's uh, a typo. It was actually released right at the tail end of 2020 um, on Netflix in December 2020. It's directed by George C. Wolfe, and uh, was written by Ruben Santiago Hudson, who wrote the screenplay, and it's based upon a play by August Wilson. If you've uh, recently seen the movie Fences, which ironically was nominated for Best Picture, Fences was nominated for Best Picture the same year that Moonlight won it. Um, and uh, that, uh, anyway, that those those movies kind of dovetail together uh, through award season when we get to the Moonlight conversation. But uh, August Wilson, apparently Denzel Washington has purchased and like uh, arranged a sort of cycle of uh, cinematic productions of August Wilson plays that are going to be distributed to Netflix over the, over the years uh, coming soon. And Ma Rainey is, is, was one of them. Um, and I know that fences, 
I think Fences is still on Netflix. At least it did a cycle on Netflix if it isn't still there already. But um, anyway, so uh, interesting that Denzel Washington is an executive producer on on uh, on Fences, and I know he at least had an involvement in Mal Rainey getting made. Um, was a uh, was a uh, sorry, I'm I trying to think of the word a dramatic. A mentor for Chadwick Boseman, who is one of the stars of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. This was, uh, if you've got, followed us for for a while, uh, you know that we did an episode when when Boseman passed away, noting that this was the last film that he made, um, and this is his last performance, and he really goes out with a bang uh, on this one. Um, I, I'd say this is probably. I don't know about you guys. I, I think maybe between that and um, his James, his James Brown portrayal, this is probably the I, I, maybe this one. Actually, I'd say this one is probably the most concentrated dramatic performance I ever saw him do. Because mm-hmm. um, this movie is not as long. I want to say hour and a half, hour forty five, something like that. Um, Get on up was 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 a bit longer, a little over two hours. Um, but uh, yeah, he is he is a force in this movie, which is saying something when you share the screen with Viola Davis, who is a force unto herself, uh, Oscar winner, um, won an Oscar by the way for Fences um, uh, uh, that year, um, and so Bozeman, I will say, in terms of awards for Ma Rainey, it's a little early to be to be having that discussion because um it's it's uh award eligible for the year that we're in right now so not all the awards uh organizations have made their nominations or had their awards but as far as your uh most recognizable awards um just the week that we are recording this the golden globe nominations came out and both viola davis and chadwick boseman were nominated for best actress and best actor respectively so um it is um Bozeman in like critic association, um, award, uh, shows, um, or programs has won or been nominated by many, many critic associations, um, for his performance. And also AFI, the American film Institute shows Ma Rainey's black bottom as its movie of the year. So it won that as well. So, um, this is not the last we'll be hearing of Davis Bozeman or Ma Rainey. I think, uh, I, I think we'll probably hear that there, there's, there will definitely be some Oscar recognition here, whether, whether it's something small, no, no disrespect to those other categories. Cause creating a film is hard work on every angle, but whether it's something like costuming or score or anything like that, but the these two acting performances were really uh really something special um so in terms of uh reception at least uh rotten tomatoes currently has its critic rating at 98% for uh Ma Rainey's Black Bottom the user rating is 77% you know i'm starting to notice a trend here <laughs> i'm not going to say rotten tomatoes users are all racist or anything <laughs> like that but you know we do this every week you know, I, I look at the Rotten Tomatoes score, the critic score, and the user score because I'm usually fascinated when there's a gap between the two. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I have not, I've never found a more consistent gap than it is with movies about black culture. Yeah. Yeah. And 
I'm just going to let that be what it is, but, but it's hard not to notice when you look every week mm-hmm. and, and see the biggest discrepancies yeah. are about these kinds of topics. Mm-hmm. So uh, I find that interesting. Uh, IMDB has a 7.1 and it's Metacritic, uh, adjusted rating is 87. Um, so yeah, you listen, solid, solid scoring all around. Um, I never read any of the user yeah. uh, reviews and stuff, so. <laughs> so so I don't actually know why. I mean, some people, I will say this. Um, you know, it's a heavy it's a heavy film, um, and those who are um, conditioned to expecting we talked about this before we started the show, but you're conditioned to expecting like action to kind of drive the story forward yeah. rather than character are going to be bored with both of these films. Um, you know, these, uh, every film we've talked about this month so far, really, um, like I, just in my head, I just kind of laugh at the idea that maybe there were some people out there that had no idea what they were getting into. They just saw Chadwick Boseman and they were like, Oh, you know, (laughs) this has got to be related to black Panther in the same way that I remember an aunt of mine one time, like renting, I think it was the good son for her for her um grandson after home alone because she saw macaulay culkin was in it and she's like oh it's that little funny kid from home alone yeah this will be good I, i'm pretty sure that probably didn't happen but i, I who knows, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> that's definitely the extreme example but I, as soon as you said that i was also thinking or like my girl yeah. or something yes oh, oh right. gosh right. like now, what do you mean my parents did not do that my mother did not do that but i could totally see her doing that she didn't but I would not have been surprised had she noticed that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, a few, uh, a few light mentions uh, regarding to trivia. Um, you know, we, we already said this, this was the last, Chadwick Boseman's last film. Um, he, was, uh, he was receiving treatment during the filming of the movie and and no one knew about it. And if you go back to see even like Avengers Endgame or Infinity War, you know, some of his previous to this uh, films, mm-hmm. you can really see it in his face. Yeah, I, I noticed it and I thought like, well, you know, if I hadn't, you know, even like if I hadn't known if I'd seen this and hadn't known, I would just like like oh he lost some weight for this movie yeah. because he he didn't want to look so muscular or something like that. So I wouldn't have thought anything about it. But it's it's very I I didn't even go back and watch those, but like I could tell you know yeah. just from from seeing it. Right. Well, you know, you just I you know go back and watch like the port the portal scene from Endgame <laughs> over and over again all the time. It's your, it's your daily routine. It's my daily routine. Get up, you know, rise and grind. Watch the Endgame <laughs> clip, and you know, get to go. Now, um, the uh, but you know, his face is really prominent at the beginning of that scene, so it's kind of etched in my mind a little bit. But yeah, you know, I, I'm the same way, Jared. Like if I had not known, I would have thought he's like pulling a Christian Bale or something, and yeah. just yeah, something really weird. And uh, just losing weight for the role because he is, you know, the, he is playing a starved artist, mm-hmm. and um, so it works well for. Um, that sounds like an awful thing to say. I, I don't mean like it works well for, but like obviously, it makes sense from a if you didn't know that was happening for, for right. that to right. be you know, kind of glance right by you. Um, yeah. You know, uh, we mentioned Viola Davis in in Fences, so this you know her second time. Um, her second time in an August Wilson adaptation. That would be really interesting if she, uh, if she got nominated 
for this one as well and and managed to win this one because that would say a lot for August Wilson's writing as well as her performances. Um, I read an article earlier today or at least saw a headline that Chadwick Boseman um, is the first. Okay. I'm going to try to try to get this right. And I shouldn't have mentioned this in the award things, but (laughs) the, the first African, the first African American, the first actor, I think the first actor to be nominated for four SAG awards in the same year. So like back when we were talking about collateral, we had mentioned that Jamie Foxx had been nominated for best actor with Ray and best supporting actor with collateral. Mm-hmm. So in the SAG awards, I wouldn't say it's a cheat. It's just the way that their award show is set up. They have a best ensemble cast, which I think is an award that should be in more award shows, mm-hmm. um, by the way. But he has been nominated for acting uh, solo acting performances in um, Ma Rainey and in the five bloods, the other Netflix uh, um movie, the Spike Lee movie. And, Mm. and both of those ensembles have also been nominated for best ensemble. So he has, yeah, four different acting nominations on the same awards show. So, uh, which is unprecedented apparently. I mean, apparently as if we, we would expect that to be precedented, but, um, (laughs) Yeah, so it's a pretty pretty amazing thing, and it's so it's you know in equal parts really tragic that he's gone now um, because it seems like he was really just hitting his stride um, with stuff. But at the same time, to say he was just hitting his stride, the fact that he was he was um, leaving behind he has left behind such a rich body of work. I hate for this to turn into Chadwick Boseman episode part two. Sorry, but <laughs> it's unavoidable to to an extent. Um, <clears throat> it, it's pretty interesting. Like it, it makes me think about last week when we were talking. And this is obviously a superficial comparison since we're talking about a man's life. But we were talking about Jim Brown last week, like how he was this record breaker and just at the top of his game, and then you know he just leaves. And so, like you got to wonder, or even like Muhammad Ali with with the uh, with you know being taken away because of Viet for refusing to be drafted into Vietnam war. And, and like you, you, you ask yourself like, man, what did we miss out on? But at the same time you can look back and be like, man, what, what a run that, that he did have, you know? So it's, it's, I don't know. These two different kind of, kind of things are pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, totally. Um, you know, because I can never get enough material and content to throw at our listeners, uh, I will let you guys know there's there is also a supplemental documentary about the making of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix as well. If you watch the film, I think it'll be the first recommendation that comes up as soon as the credits start playing. So, um, but it's an interesting. It's just a little thirty minute documentary about how they put everything together and and um, you know just tried to try to bring that screenplay to life and stuff. So it's really um, really interesting. So. Um, anyway, um, so yes, uh, obviously we're in a situation now where, um, this is, this is a heavy film, um, with, with a lot going on, but we've gotten all of my, uh, all these little, uh, uh, you know, uh, little, little details out of the way. So, uh, Tim, why don't you bring us into the conversation and give us some impressions, sure. thoughts, or, or any, any random parts you want to start picking, picking. <laughs> no I'll just I guess I could start with overall just I I thought uh I, you know part of it's due to the you know the 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 play you know August Wilson Wilson's writing 
And the other part is, you know, for sure the cast, but I feel like it was just a, every moment, I mean, it was just a tremendous film, just a fantastic, everybody was just, I mean, Bozeman, you know, was the stand, you know, I think Bozeman and Bela Davis were the standouts for sure, but I feel like just everybody was just, everything they did just knocked it out of the park. Every, every cast member, I mean, everybody was perfectly cast. Um, and, uh, you know, like we talked about with last week with One Night in Miami, because it's a play, it's going to rely a lot on, yeah, characters and dialogue and um, just something with, with Wilson's, you know, play, you know, being able to write. I mean, his his writing and these characters, everything just had like this even, you know, not, you know, not counting the music, you know, the, the when they're actually performing, but just everything had this very lyrical, almost poetic quality to it that just... I mean, you know, there's two or three places where, you know, scenes were shot, you know, there's two, just a couple locations, but everything just really, it just, you were just kind of swept in and just kind of kept, I don't know, it was just, it just kept you enraptured the entire time. Jared, um, what, what were your thoughts coming, coming into it and anything and stood out for you? Um, I knew absolutely nothing about it, uh, going into it. So um, I, you know, I had no idea where the, where the story was going to go or anything. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was so impressive because I immediately, like as soon as Chadwick Boseman gave his, his one speech in there, which I mean, he's got some, some good ones, but there's one in particular, um, I'm like, wow, that's okay. That's, that's the best acting I've seen from Chadwick Boseman. And that's the best acting I've seen from maybe anybody in a while. So, um, that was, I think really what drew me into that movie up to that point. I was just like, yeah, this is, you know, this is fine, but I don't know exactly where this is going. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was really what, what hooked me into it. Um, I don't know if I can say a lot of the rest of it better than, than what Tim did. Um, you know, and so without, you know, going further and getting into any spoilers or anything, that was the hook for me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, for me, I didn't know much about this either beyond like a plot synopsis. Like it's a, it's a hot day in Chicago and it's a recording studio and I'm, and I'm already, but even before we talk about the whole bottle episode, you know, community <laughs> joke, uh, of one night in Miami, I'm already thinking, Oh, this is what that's going to be. Cause I, I had seen fences before my wife and I went to go see fences just on a, on a whim, on a, on a rare date night out pre COVID that, that we got to do. And we both like Denzel and Viola Davis. And, and then all of a sudden it wasn't until after we saw that movie, I, I thought, you know, I was thinking to myself, man, that, that movie, it was great, but it felt really small. Mm, uh, and I was yeah. like, I don't get that in movies very much. And then so I'm reading the trivia on it later and I'm like, Oh, it's based on a play. No wonder it feels small. <laughs> yeah. Of course it feels small. Like, yeah. like I feel so stupid. Um, so once I knew it came from the same playwright, I was like, okay, so this will probably be like, you know, like a bottle episode type movie, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. Um, I'm starting to know, starting to realize I probably can't binge on that, that type of content. Um, (laughs) But I do really love that concept when it's executed well. And it it certainly is here uh, and and was last week too. Um, Yeah. um, The, yeah, I had no idea where it was going either. I was certainly surprised. Um, you know, where it went 
Mm-hmm. Um, I knew there would be some sort of sense of disappointment, uh, knowing the time period that it took place and, um, how, uh, how things are structured in society then and, and, and to an extent now, um, you know, we talked about Sam Cook last week and talking about, you know, intellectual property and, and trying to own your own material and stuff. And, and we really see the uh, sadder and darker side of that here. Um, Jared, you mentioned the speech, uh, one of the speeches or monologues by Bozeman. I'm going to presume you're talking about his, his God speech uh, and that, or was it one of the yeah. other ones? Yeah, it was it was the I think it was the the God speech where yeah connecting that to his childhood what happened in his childhood yeah so let's talk about that um, we can you know I don't I'm not going to intentionally get into all the spoilers and like tell the whole plot like I am want to do sometimes um, but yeah let's talk about that scene um, let's circle back around Tim so 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 he is. He's he's antagonistic, you know. First of all, you know Bozeman's character is has a lot of bravado and a lot of and a lot of arrogance and stuff in terms of confidence in his own abilities. And he has this he he is a set he is a studio musician for Viola Davis's character Ma Rainey. He's a trumpet player in her band, but he has these aspirations about breaking out on his own, getting his own band, recording his own record, all this other stuff. And so he is sees himself as set apart from the rest of the band. Um, and his attitude shows that too. And the other guys just kind of fall in line, do their job, keep their head down, that kind of stuff. And can you even see like, not sorry to jump in, but no, go. Um, I, it almost, and, and this is just, this just is a testament to Bozen's ability, but um, almost even in his face, you, you got the feeling, like, this sense of like desire and aspiration and, I don't know, just the way, like, his, I don't know, I can't, and maybe it's just me, but just almost the way, just the way his, like, facial expression, you got the sense of wanting more and, like, having these uh, incredible desires. I don't know, it just, it just felt like he even, even in his face, he was reflecting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. He, he definitely, yeah, he, he definitely conveyed to me that, like, this was a, a drive that was going to refuse to be denied. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. In that, which is admirable in some senses, but, yeah. but also when you have that, when you have that drive, you still have to accept that there are just some things that are out of your control, yeah. um, which is, which, which I can imagine is because I don't consider myself the kind of person that Postman's character is, um, maybe sometimes to my detriment, um, but nevertheless, um, a refusal to accept that there are things out of your control can really sabotage you when life happens and and we see that happen to Bozeman, uh, his, his character. Um, but you know, a a lot of the, I I would imagine a lot of those personalities can be forged from childhood trauma, like, like his was, um, where they see an injustice take place and, and, and are determined that's never going to happen to me. Like, or, or, or I'm not going to let my life be marked by this same experience the way that I just witnessed it happen to someone close to me. Um, and so, you know, he would, you know, he, he recounts a story about his, about his mother, uh, being mistreated. And, and, and honestly, I would do a terrible job trying to recount it because I can't remember everything he said. Um, so if anybody else wants to recount it, great, (laughs) because I'm not going to be the one to be able to do it. Um, 
but he is in a um, argument with a more religious believing member of the band. And he tries to, you know, respond to Chadwick and, and his character Levy and, and um, Bozeman's character does not respond well, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, so he really, he really goes off and um, it's a, it's a painful it's a painful monologue to listen to, uh, and, and, but because it is so well executed and, you know, I, I don't watch the Oscars anymore, but, um, when I was younger and would watch them, whenever they showed the nominees, they would, you know, insert a, a scene from the movie that they're nominated for. And, you know, even in some like spoof movies and stuff, they would be like, this is my Oscar scene or whatever, you know, that kind of, that kind of <laughs> thing. Um, (laughs) this, this far in a way would be the scene. I think they would play if they still do that. I I don't know if they still do that or not for, for my opinion. Um, and, um, I could not, um, (laughs) I got emotional thinking about this the other day, but, uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping that my, I'm hoping I'm tired enough that my emotions don't sneak up on me trying to say this out loud now, but, he has a very antagonistic uh, and um, hopeless view of God um, as a black man living in Chicago uh, in the – what decade did this take place? In the 20s, I think? I think so. Um, and so all that comes out and you know, he – it goes beyond his personal rejection of the hope that God – loves him uh, and goes on to evolve into this idea that he believes God doesn't care about black people anyways. You know, you know, if, if you were to, if you were to divorce this drama, dramatic moment from it and look at it from an analytical standpoint, it's the whole, you know, why would God allow bad things to happen conversation? And like, you know, there's dozens of conversations on Twitter and social media and other toxic places that, you know, you can, you can have that conversation and actually hash that out. But in the moment, and the moments of empathy and, and story and stuff, you hear this. Um, I, I had to tonight, I, I didn't put it in my notes or anything, but I had to look and see what, what documented faith tradition Chadwick Boseman had, um, anywhere. And from what I can tell, he was born, born, he was, he was baptized at a young age in the Christian faith and, and, and all, um, for all manner of speaking, it doesn't appear that he departed from that at any point in his life. And, and if you're going to look at the way, um, people who live their lives to try to love people like Jesus did, the stories that you hear after his death, the way he treated people and never, you know, publicized it seem to back up that he, if that is what he believed, then he was living what he believed, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was comforting to me because watching this monologue, I couldn't help but think to myself, this man knows that he's dying right now mm. when he's delivering these lines. And he could have, he definitely could have had me fooled that he wasn't really feeling that in his heart. And may, maybe even in his weaker, who knows, I wouldn't judge him if, if he did wrestle with that. You know, when you're coming into the peak of your career, he was only what in his early forties. I mean, you know, like it, it would not, I would have cast no judgment on him at all. If, if in a weaker moment he felt those things, um, 
for for feeling like his life was maybe just getting started um to only be taken away and and so uh it's a really really heavy hitting scene but um it, was I the only one who thought about that or did she, either you guys like think about that at all or or even like your your take on how even even beyond Bozeman himself, but 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 his character, a character like that, could have that kind of view of the world, even when he's surrounded by men who are going through the same thing he is, and just see it a different way. Um, you know, what's um, what's y'all's take on that scene in particular, beyond its obvious uh, award-winning merit from the performance? Tim, you want to go? <laughs> Sure, sure. Just <laughs> We're just going to assume I want you to go first, Tim, whenever okay. I just leave back sometimes, away from the mic. Sometimes I'm being like nice and deferential to, to Tim, and then sometimes I'm like, I need more time to think about this. So <laughs> yeah. I'm going to throw him right out there in front just of the bus. Yeah. <laughs> All right, there you go. So no, you, you mentioned that before recording, Stephen, like thinking like, you know, he at that point, uh, yeah, wondering how, if, you know, where he was at in his in his illness and wondering if he knew at that point that things weren't looking good. And, and I, I'm surprised, like after you said that it made so much sense to me that I wonder how much of, yeah, his, his, uh, extra like circumstances outside the film had an impact on that, um, on that delivery because it, I mean, it, it is like you said, it's gut wrenching. It is, it is like career. I mean, like you said, Oscar, the Oscar scene, you know I mean? It might even be like the, in one of the in memoriam, you know, scenes. I mean, that is like career. I mean, it's just, it was just, a, a just wrecked me so much. And, um, after you, yeah, after you shared that with me, I, I it, I, to me, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I'm curious too. And I wonder how much of that was going through his head at the time. Uh, yeah. I, I kind of had, I guess a little bit of a different take on it. Um, I, I just kept thinking more about, you know, I mean, his, his performance in that scene would have been really touching and wrecking regardless of if this was a a fictional character, uh, if this was in some Star Trek movie, you know, as some alien race telling about all this. Um, but what I kept, you know, just coming back to thinking about that was like, this is, this seems like such a genuine, uh, performance from not from an actor, but but someone. It was like in the moment I was hearing the story of someone who had experienced that in real life. Mm. That the performance was so good. Oh wow! And and all I could think about was this kind of thing did happen routinely yeah. in real life, and and so it almost I think kind of took me back more to like a personal account again. Like it was just almost hard to separate the line between fiction and reality there. Um, a few years ago, like when I went back to school for a second degree, um, I had to, uh, I, I like something from my previous school didn't satisfy it, a history requirement. So I had to do like a crash course in history again, even though I had a history minor, which is funny. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, I had to take an exam to exempt me from a history class. And so I had to go through a couple of these little books that were, you know, just sort of crash course. And you really had to read cover to cover in order to pass this test. Um, and so just going back through, you know, history reminds you of the horrors of American history. Um, and so, you know, this, you know, especially everything we've been talking about, 
the topic we've we've been on uh, this month and everything, and, and to get that performance about a personal account, even though fictional, um, you know, we 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 know that that kind of thing routinely happened, and there often was no justice for it. So I can't remember if we were uh, talking before we went uh, before we started recording or or when it began about the concept of of justice and all that but that was something that that really stuck with me of, of him having to live with the injustice that happened and how how his performance in that scene was just like the raw effect of what that does to somebody and then we see later in the movie what it does like ultimately mm-hmm how it destroys them. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, it really, you know, j- just from a, just from like a, a religious and theological perspective, um, that scene, that scene hurts so much um, because not to hear it's it's not that my ears are so tender that I can't handle a, a you know, a person's anger and, 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 um, you know, the, that lived experience, you know, granted, yeah, of course this movie is fictional. Ma Rainey was, was a real historical figure. She's a real musician. Uh, Levy's character, Bozeman's character is fictional. And so that story, you know, is, is what it is, um, for a dramatic effect. But obviously that is a real window and a, and a representation of who knows how many times those, those things happen, you know? And it burdens me so much to think about, um, I go all the way back to, you know, watching the who killed Malcolm X, uh, documentary this week, uh, after watching one night in Miami, remember in one night in Miami when he was talking, I, I know it sounds like I'm going way off track here, but I promise that it'll come back. Uh, when, they were arguing like Sam and Jim were arguing with him because he was, you know, he was out there calling people white devils and stuff. Right. You know, like he was, he was being like real out there with, with this hard lined racial uh, line in the sand because of, because of true racial injustice that had been occurring Um, in the, you know, I think in the rooftop scene, he's talking about making the trip to Mecca uh, going to Saudi Arabia and stuff like that. So, you know, that, that really did happen. He really did make that trip later on. And that's discussed a little bit in the who killed Malcolm X documentary. But apparently, you know, after he leaves the nation of Islam and he comes back, um, he is, I, I don't know if I'd call him a changed man, but he is definitely Malcolm X with a lot more perspective mm. and hearing him talk in maybe like the last six months to a year before he was killed, he um it really makes me sympathetic to think like if he had not been taken out what kind of man would he have gotten old to be because it really seemed like his perspective was widening he still had the sense of justice about him that he never lost but um i wish i had the quote in front of me but he's like you know i realize in the past i've made some sweeping broad generalizations about a person based on the color of their skin and he's like, and that's not something I have any interest in doing going forward. So like he was still very obviously for the advancement of black people in America because they weren't getting any of that. But at the same time, he definitely didn't seem to be 
um, forcefully confrontational and in an antagonistic way. Um, and that was seeming to change. And I was thinking like, man, if he just had more time, what -hmm. would have happened? And, and, um, I've heard this story here, here and, and, and I heard even in Dave Chappelle's story, although he would say he, he may not be a very good Muslim, but, but he's, he's, he, you know, still proclaims to me, he tells a story about how he converted was like these guys who owned a pizza shop, you know, and where he lives, like were just kind to him. You know, and like invested their life in them. It's, it's, it, you know, it was discipleship in a way, you know, like people who just in, gave of their life to him and, and, and invested in him. And, and it's kept this all the way back to this, this microcosm, this picture of Bozeman's monologue. And I just think how many people have taken a very good story, the good news of the gospel of Jesus and, used it and weaponized it, you know, for centuries. Um, and, and as a result, as a consequence of that have created people, you know, created worldviews and people who would reject, reject God based on the idea of God that's been presented to them, you know, or seeing the people who claim God for them and seeing the way they live out of their life. You know, I mean, you know, you even see, I mean, listen, you know, we, you see some of that now with the people who claim to be Christian in the public eye uh, in the, in the political world, you know, being these, you know, crazy conspiracy theory people who like they have co-opted the idea of the Christian God along with guns and other stuff or whatever, you know? And, and so like, I, I see that and I think about Bozeman's performance. And I'm like, man, how much collateral damage has taken place over his in the course of history because people have, have weaponized a very good and sacred thing. Um, and that, that weighs on my heart really heavily. And I don't know, I don't know what to do with that some days, you know, like other than just try to do it the right way <laughs> and get to know people and try to be the, uh, the the Christian counterpart to that guy who was nice to Dave Chappelle, you know, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> be like, hey man, you know, I'm not. I don't know. Uh, that oh, gosh, it's it's just so heavy, you know. Uh, which which we warned all of you was it was going to be like this tonight. So I hope you're still listening. Um, anyway, <laughs> sorry to get get defensive when I get uncomfortable. Um, anyways, it's um all this to say like. Good art draws like this thing out of you. Like Tim, you and I had started this years ago because we wanted to talk this much about things we saw, you know? Um, You know, we, we have fun and talking about the things that we geek out over, but it's a special thing to, to see uh, a film or a series or something that that makes you dig this deep introspectively about things. Yeah. Um, and that's why we're here. At least this is why I wanted this for my part was why I was really glad that we do this. Um, so yeah, you know, Bozeman's story arc, I feel, I feel kind of guilty that we're not paying more attention to Viola Davis's uh, performance. It's great. And I don't mean that dismissively, but I got to say, I mean, I feel like we can all kind of agree that Bozeman pretty much stole the show on this one. And and I think part of that 
for better or worse, is, is because it's a posthumous release. Um, and it is so strong. And not only is he stealing, you know, the not only is he kind of stealing the show, but his character is about stealing the show from from Ma Rainey, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, they both are, it's interesting, they, they are both kind of um, met with the confrontation but 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 with uh, Bozeman's um, arrogance, they're both kind of met with a conversation of what happens when the white producer wants to be in control of the distribution of your music and how things are done. And for her credit, as a character, Ma Rainey stands her ground almost at every turn, mm-hmm. and it comes off, which is interesting. Um, Tim, I'll start with you on this. Sure. Do, it, maybe I'm off base, but I feel like you could give a good answer for this. Um, oh, no. <laughs> no pressure. Um, <laughs> do you, did you see her doing that as, cause I'm thinking about like she shows up an hour late to the audition. And I got to admit the first thing that went in my mind was on Twitter. I always read jokes about um, how Lauren Hill would always be like two hours late to her shows. And, um, it's like a running gag at this point that she's like notoriously <laughs> late for her, her uh, performances. Yeah. Um, so I immediately it's like, Oh, kind of like Lauren Hill. Um, but do you think it is a double standard in this movie? Do you feel like she is presented as something of a diva or um, a, I'll just say diva. I'm sorry. My vocabulary is lazy. You get into this hour of the night um, for standing her ground for being confrontational and being in uh, uh, um, steadfast in what yeah. she wants out of the situation because she's a woman or because she's a black woman. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, Bozeman is also kind of on the come up here to trying to make something of himself. And do you feel like the movie shows Ma Rainey this way and Levy this way? Or do you think if a viewer gets that out of it, it's kind of revealing maybe their own biases. That's a good, oh gosh, that's a really good question. You know, going into, so so watching the film and seeing her, you know, I, you know, at first, I think a lot of it also is true to who she, who Ma Rainey really was. She's, you know, actual character, very brash, lots of bravado, um, like out lesbian, just a lot of things in the 1920s that seemed very outside of its time, you know? Um, yeah. But I, you know, watching it and, you know, we been talking already the last couple, you know, week or so about Black History Month and um, thinking about that time period and how, you know, slavery had been over for 50, 60 years. Um, but new things happened after that to kind of um, keep keep the ideals of slavery going, I guess, so to speak, like, like Jim Crow laws. A lot of things were kind of happening at that time to still kind of keep black people in chains. Um, sometimes, you know, literally, sometimes figuratively. Um, and I felt like Ma Rainey with her character, she was just, she knew, and it was almost kind of with, um, who was it? Either, um, no, no, Sam Cook. Kind of the idea of like having that economic power and mm-hmm. um, just kind of taking advantage of it as much as you, knowing that, if there were any other situation, you would never be able to get away with any of this, you know, any, I mean, anything even close to that. And so she kind of knowing, and I think she even said something in the film to that extent, like Mm -hmm. they don't care about me. They just care about my voice or something like that. But knowing that 
she can she can can do this and get away with it. It's almost like I'm going to take all I can get because I know normally this wouldn't be the case or it, this won't be happening, you know, for who knows how long, you know. And so I kind of looked at it as that, like, this is a way to kind of get more than you could have possibly in a different situation. If that, so, yeah, a, I don't know. A reparation that well, but, of sorts, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's I mean, a, yeah. I don't, I'm not trying to be funny, but I mean, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I know the power I have, so I'm going to wield it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And so that's, that was kind of where, um, what I watching it and afterwards kind of thinking in that route, like I, yeah, to, that, that power like that at that time to be able to have the ability to tell people to get me a Coke or this was just yeah. unthinkable. And so for her, I'm like, yeah, just get it while, you, <laughs> get it while you can, you know, get it, get it if you're able to. Well, for, yeah, for somebody without privilege mm-hmm. to be able to have access to that power, I mean, why would you want to blame them for, for mm-hmm. using it? in that moment. And for someone with privilege to be on the receiving end of that, obviously they have a real disconnect with trying to understand, you know, that. And I like the fact that she advocated for, I don't know if Sylvester was like, I can't remember. He was like her nephew, but the little boy that she wanted to like, you know, hype her into the song, but he had the stutter. Yeah. And like, you know, I had a real, that was an interesting scene for me to watch as, as someone who has both done audio production. Um, And, and managed for efficiency purposes yeah. um, in my career. And also her want to advocate for someone who was probably not going to be given much of a chance in anything in life. For one, he was, he was black in the twenties and also he had a stutter. So like, you know, what, what, what opportunities is he really going to have? And so she, you know, she fought with them tooth and nail to get him on the recording with them knowing they would not want to do it, you know, on, Pretty much solely, I mean, maybe I'm giving them too much of the benefit of the doubt, but being like recording is an expensive process and he's going to have to have so many takes done because he's not going to be able to say the line in one take. Um, But she wouldn't have it, you know? And Mm -hmm. so that was, uh, uh, was pretty cool. And I could see both sides of the issue of that scene, but obviously, you know the right moral call in that situation is, is what happened. Yeah. I Uh, I forgot about that scene, but I, yeah, what a, it's basically just like, hey, I promised him he's going to do this, so we're doing it. And I, man, that was great. Yeah, I, as we were going through, like with our character, I, I was just like, man, she she is a lot. She is just <laughs> she is grating on my nerves. Yeah. And but I thought what I thought was really cool about it was she does have a scene later, like you're talking about Tim with uh, another character where she admits that part of it is just knowing that they don't care about her and just basically putting them through stuff because she can, (laughs) because she has that power. Whereas, you know, Levy doesn't, but when you look at it in the context of what happens in the end, she's able to at least chip away here and there with these little, like little ways of getting back at them and digs and digs, it, even though it comes across as just, again, almost insufferable at times on the outside looking in. But with him, you know, he has no real power to do that. He's he's replaceable. Mm. And because of that, he can't really do it. And, and he holds it in. You know, he has he has the opposite, you know, whereas she she has that conversation where she comes out and says that she, she is doing that. She's aware of the fact Mm -hmm. she's doing that. He, he talks about how, and that's kind of before he gets into his big speech, he talks to them about how, 
he knows the white man and he yeah. smiles and he's doing all this stuff and he's going to he's going to get his eventually but he knows what's going on too but it it comes back to bite him because he does hold it in so much it just erupts at the wrong time yeah. and completely destroys his life and so i think there's something to be said for being able to get it out in a you know ne- neither one of them have exactly the the right approach i mean they're, they're completely justified in feeling how they feel um based on you know the way the time period and the way they're treated and everything that's, that's happened to them but it it's it ends up being so much more self-destructive for him because he doesn't have that power to be able to you know get back in little ways and it ultimately you know is what destroys him yeah yeah um it's uh it's an interesting dichotomy they have there with those characters um you know and and i it it's uh that kind of hopelessness that that levy feels uh or experiences toward the end too like it's it's interesting how he comes into the the film you know, as it's getting started, already confident because the producers have trying to go behind Ma's back and show preferential treatment to to his way of performing the song versus how she wants it, you know. Um, and so he's already setting himself up in his own mind to be, you know, on the up and up, like, you know, I can't lose kind of kind of mentality. And eventually it slowly just all starts falling apart to where, you know, his dream to um get his own his own record is you know he's he's offered you know peanuts in comparison to what he thought it was going to be and it's uh and it and it doesn't escape me either the notion that at the beginning of the uh, I keep wanting to say the play because it was you know <laughs> based on a play at the beginning of the film they sit there and they tell ma well we want to do the song Levy's way. We like that better. And in Levy's mind the whole time, he's like, see, they like the way I do music. So I'm going to get, and then, and then at the end they deny him a record deal and just want to buy his songs from him. And they're like, well, white people don't want to hear your way of doing music. And like, they're completely double speaking on him mm-hmm. and, and just like completely using the argument they used on ma, uh, on him. Uh, at the end and because they have all the power in that situation and that just sends him, you know, over the edge. Um, I mean, understandably. So, I mean, you know, based on the, the trajectory that his character took in the film, but uh, that, that can really, that really breaks in there. And after all that, and I might be wrong here. So you guys like, correct me if you noticed something that I didn't or didn't notice what was is like the last shot of the movie is the recording studio with an all-white band recording one of Levy's songs that mm-hmm. they bought from him for like five bucks. Mm-hmm. And the person playing trumpet, which is the, the instrument that Levy played, was the producer who bought the song from him. Oh, I missed that. Um, at least I mean, I'm about to say something that's going to sound like I'm saying it to be funny, but um, all those white people looked alike to me. So I might be wrong. I'm not trying to be funny or be woke or something, you know, or anything like that. I just, I generally 
couldn't tell, but I was like, but the way, the only reason it brought it to my attention is because it's start, you know, it's a wide shot of the whole band. And obviously it is transitioning into a trumpet solo after the chorus of the song is sung. So it's zooming, it's starting to zoom in on the trumpet player. And he looked familiar to me. It looked like mm-hmm. that producer, uh, Sturt, Sturtevant, I think was the one uh, out of the two who, um, who did him, gave him the raw deal there. Um, so that's just an, based on what I'm interpreting in my mind that what I saw was just an ex- extra twist in the knife, a twist of the knife um, at the end. And it just, you know, it makes me think about, um, uh, I can't, I uh, sad that I can't remember her name because that's the whole point of what I'm about to say. But like, uh, the, there was a old, uh, uh, black blues musician who recorded hound dog before Elvis got his hands on it. And she, big mama Thornton. That's who it is. Thank God. I remembered who it was. Okay. <laughs> I don't feel so bad. Big mama Thornton was her name. Um, um, fun fact for night cheese history. Uh, the film, a few good men uses her version of the song. Um, anyway, uh, when Tom Cruise is driving to the newsstand at night. Anyways, um, I've seen that movie way too many times to, to be able to remember that. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, you know, she had the version of Hound Dog that not as many people recognize because Elvis takes it. And he was widely criticized, at least retroactively, um, for being the great white cultural appropriator, you know, of, of black music. Um, even, even Eminem joked about it in one of his songs, you know. So... Um, without a hint of irony. So um, anyway, it's not, no, actually a, a great heaping dose of irony and, uh, and without me. Um, that's the whole point of the lyric that he mentions. He's like, you know, I'm the greatest person since Elvis Presley to, to take black music away from them. Anyway. So um, anyway, I'm getting way off the rails now, <laughs> but the, um, but yeah, no, there's this, uh, you know, it touches on that idea too of the, the theft of black culture. And, um, it's an interesting, the, the, we, we talked about the 30 minute documentary that was at the, that is available on Netflix as well. And they talked about how black culture, um, in America, a lot of it was born out of the leftovers of things. Like they talked about food, like collard greens and chitlins and stuff like that. Like we were given nothing, like everything was taken from us. So we had to build culture out of the leftovers of things. And they talked about how blue, the blues as a, as a, as a music genre was just this sort of kind of leftover mess in a way that they birthed something artistic out of. Um, it was obviously well more articulated in the documentary that you guys, that you got, you listeners should watch if you have the time to, um, that, that, uh, and, and so, this this idea and this presentation that they have built this thing. Levy has built his own music, you know, small music library to record now. And again, just stolen from him again. And so, you know, um, a real a real heartbreaking thing there. Um, so, I know we've been going for a while um, here on Myrani, <laughs> and then there's still a lot more depression left to explore. Um, do we have? Um, but there are more things about Ma Rainey that you guys want to discuss. Any scenes or any anything, any other feelings we really didn't get to get into? Nothing that has to. I think there's a lot we could. Nothing is like jumping to mind that we had have to necessarily. But yeah, I feel like just hitting the high points. But um, 
Yeah, I yeah. can't think of anything else. Yeah, sure. I think I I think I covered most of what I wanted to talk about with you know with with his speech and then you know kind of tying them together. Um, yeah. yeah, and and I and I did relate. Like, I mean, I you know any any movie, especially with these movies, it's I feel like it's this weird line where I'm like trying to relate to it sometimes and and uh, which is very easy but i mean in terms of in, in some ways in terms of like relating to certain things without trying to compare my experience to that if that makes sense you know yeah, yeah. um so like with just with her talking about them not caring about her and stuff like that i'm like i kind of relate to this from the working world where you get to the <laughs> point where you just feel like man you are completely replaceable with this i mean mm. like to a scary degree maybe i've just had um yeah. bad experiences lately but um but it, it is sort of a, a weird thing where you're then like well but my experience does not compare to what they're dealing with here. So it's this, this weird thing where you're like, you're relating to it, but trying to make sure you don't compare what your experience has been to that, you know? Yeah. Well, that's good art too, you know, that you can relate to it on some level and it doesn't have to be a one-to-one experience. You know, I mean, since we're talking about, I was um, watching this, uh, it, it, I'm I'm sure my listeners think I just sit around and, and watch documentaries all day for as much as I talk about additional things. I have a job, I promise. I I mean I just I just thought you sat around and watched Marvel all day, you know, just like with the the reference we made about the, you know, you watch you watch the portal scene from Endgame every yeah. morning. That's your routine. You go into the office and you sit down <laughs> from a coworker and you say on your left as you sit down and yeah, you know, that sort of thing. That's exactly who I am to a T. Um, but sorry guys, my dogs decided to get into a fight. Um, so, um, anyway, totally antagonistic. Um, I, um, after Chadwick Boseman died 2020, uh, the ABC news show did like a retrospective on him and Disney plus apparently has uploaded that, uh, to, to them. Um, and I just happened across it, uh, today when I was looking at something else and, um, you know, you, you're talking about that Jared of like identifying with something, but not wanting to be like, uh, well, you know, it's not, not the same lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about Chadwick Boseman in that way when I think about, um, his portrayal of, of T'Challa, you know, because like, um, I, I have no idea. I have no frame of reference for just how culturally significant the success of that was. But at the same time, I recognize like, man, he is a fantastic hero. Like to the point where even, even white kids want to be, want to dress up like black Panther, you know, like, and it's not like that's some, not as if that's some echelon to be achieved, but, but just the notion that it's a multicultural impact, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and um, I think that, I think there is something to be cherished and, and knowing that art that arises out of one specific culture transcends its own culture and can um, have an impact on others and other, uh, other people's experiences as well. Even, even if you don't have the deepest experience from it, you know, obviously it means more to to people who can really tie it to their own um cultural experience but um yeah i I think that's that's something to keep in mind though is that you know for as much as we feel affected we we are far from the deepest affectations of of what this material does um 
I, I wanted to give two more little trivia notes uh, before we move on to Moonlight. One, which is like you couldn't make up this irony right here, but the band recording Levy's song at the end is based on Paul Whiteman. Yes, his last name is Whiteman. Uh, Whiteman's orchestra. Whiteman was labeled the king of jazz, despite being Caucasian. Mm. Um and then lastly, just a just a moment of, uh, you know, it's it's hard as we're transitioning into these films that are just being released on streaming services. You know, we don't we can't really talk about box office so much anymore right now with theaters and everything. But um, upon its digital release, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was the most watched item uh, during the for the opening weekend of uh, Netflix. So it has some sort of digital version of being at the top of the box office, I guess you could say. Um, okay. Well, um, there's no more for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is currently on Netflix. Check it out. Um, don't be depressed before you start it. Um, speak now forever. Hold your peace. And now we will transition to Moonlight, a film from 2016, which is also currently available on Netflix. Uh, Moonlight was directed by Barry Jenkins. Uh, Tim, you would remember Barry Jenkins from If Beale Street Could Talk. He also directed that film, which we discussed last summer. Um, It's this coming-of-age story um, about a boy named uh, Chiron um, in the, I don't know, but the street uh, on the streets of Miami, Miami area, I guess um, you could say. And um, a litany of awards here. Um, I, I, I only, <laughs> I only wrote down the Academy Awards and Golden Globes and I started getting tired of writing. Um, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just let you guys know. So it was um, before we get too deep into it, I do want to let everybody know just how acclaimed this film was. But um, so it was the winner for best picture uh, in the, the the awards year the 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 awards the the Oscars aired in 2017 but for the films of 2016 uh, it won Best Picture um, if you are not a follower of the Oscars it was probably the most awkward yeah. Best Picture award um, presentation in the history of the Oscars uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were presenting Best Picture. And it was a real lesson in typography, by the way, for any designers or uh, graphic users or whatever, um, in how to build a properly readable uh, awards card. So, so first of all, um, they gave Warren Beatty, who is, I don't know how old he is now, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure he's in his 80s. Yeah. So first of all, I think Hollywood needs to rethink and I'm not mm-hmm. trying to be ageist here either. It's like, it was, I, I went back and watched the clip tonight and it was so unfair to Warren Beatty. I felt so bad for him. He looked like he had dementia up on the stage and he was legitimately just confused and nobody explained anything to him until probably like afterward, they opened the envelope. They gave him the wrong envelope. Mm. It wasn't even the best picture category envelope. It was because uh, Emma Stone had won either best actress or best supporting actress or something like that for for La La Land, and so they opened the envelope and it says Emma Stone La La Land, and then this tiny little type at the bottom of the card actually has the category on it. <laughs> so all he sees is Emma Stone's name in La La Land. You can see him like looking down, looking up, looking down for like twenty seconds. <laughs> and they're just on stage <laughs> for like 20 seconds. And Faye Dunaway just grabs it from him. It's like, Oh, you're being so funny. <laughs> Whatever it looks. And she just looks at it for a second and she looks at him and she goes, 
La La Land. Yeah. (laughs) They all get up. And eventually, like, the producers are like, what the heck just happened? Um, And start running. It's so funny in retrospect because all the producers of La La Land are giving these heartfelt acceptance speeches and stuff Mm -hmm. and talking about diversity and inclusion in Hollywood and, you know, your standard liberal talking points from, from an acceptance speech at the Oscars. And you start seeing these tuxedos with headsets on just like running around in the background behind this group group of like 15 people and eventually they like cut through and one of them's holding an envelope and you see Warren Beatty kind of coasting along the 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 crowd in the back because he's so much taller than everybody else and stuff You're like what is going on and eventually one of the producers of la la land gets the uh gets wind of what's happening he overhears it and just walks up to the mic he's like by the way we didn't win uh moonlight you won this is not a joke come up here <laughs> so so incredibly awkward and they were so in shock i know they didn't probably didn't get to give their acceptance speeches either anyway if you're a fan of like cringe uh and awkward and uncomfortable videos i highly recommend uh googling that or looking that up on youtube because it is worth the three or four minutes um if you're into that kind of awkward viewing so uh, it took a while to get there. It took a while for me to get there, too. I'm sorry, everybody. Um, but it was a winner of Best Picture. Um, uh, Mahershala Ali won Best Supporting Actor. Uh, Barry Jenkins and uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney, who, was the, who were the screenwriters, won Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, nominee for Best Support, uh, Naomi Harris, who played uh, Sharon's mother, um, was a nominee for Best Supporting Actress. She lost to Viola Davis for... Yeah. For Fences, the uh, the August Wilson play, and also uh, Naomi Harris of Twenty Eight Days Later fame. Um, she was um, oh, yeah. the female lead in Twenty Eight Days Later. Um, Barry Jenkins was nominated for Best Director, lost to La La Land. Pretty much every other category they were nominated for, they lost to La La Land, um, and almost Best Picture as well. Uh, nominated for Cinematography. Um, they were a nominee for film editing. Did they lose um, cinematography which, to All Land? Yes. Oh, man. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they were a nominee for Best Score, also lost to La La Land. Um, they, at the Golden Globes, I have here that they won Best Picture, but I think they, I thought they were not, I don't know. Uh, I'll have to double check that. But, um, uh, Aaron Taylor, I'm uh, sorry, Mahershala Ali was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Golden Globes, but lost to Aaron Taylor Johnson for Nocturnal Animals. Um, Naomi Harris, bless her, she also got beat by Viola Davis again uh, for that. And then um, uh, director, screenplay, and score, they lost to La La Land again. So um, anyway, one of these days, I want us to do an episode where we have to watch a movie that we have pre that we were predisposed to hate um, before seeing it without ever watching it. And La La Land is going to be the movie that I have to watch, I think, (laughs) because not only did La La Land win best score, Tim, but it won best original song the year Lin-Manuel Miranda was nominated for the song he wrote for Moana. Um, So La La Land is the reason he doesn't have an EGOT yet. Anyway, um, what's amazing, there's so many, there's a lot of amazing things about Moonlight, okay? But um, uh, allegedly, um, the budget for Moonlight was one and a half million dollars. Wow. 
um, which is a lower budget than any other Best Picture winner since Rocky in 1976, which cost a $1.1 million in 1976. So no. adjusted for inflation, Moonlight has to be uh, considered the, the lowest budget Best Picture winner uh, of all time currently. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so something interesting. So um, I have talked a lot uh, tonight. And, uh, and I'm not done. So um, <laughs> on that note, I'm going to shut up for a few minutes and I'm going to let you boys take over uh, for Moonlight for a minute while I catch my breath and, and my voice. <laughs> so, Tim, um, let's let's talk about you know what I pick. I, I always pick on you first. Jared, you nominated <laughs> Moonlight for us. I'm going to let everybody oh, yeah, know yeah. We, we collaborate. We, we try to collaborate all the time and, and, and take take nominations from each other on what to discuss. And, and Moonlight was Jared's contribution to, uh, to our conversation. So since it's your contribution, why don't you take the lead on impressions of it or, or whatever you want to say. And Tim, jump in and, and I'll jump <laughs> in later. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I um, yeah I just remembered – obviously it was very memorable – because of the, the, the controversy. Well, I guess it wasn't really a controversy, but because of the scene, uh, created, um, at the Academy Awards. And I, I went through this phase of around that time of, of like, I really need to, to sit down and watch Academy award winning or nominated movies. Um, so I saw it, yeah, on, I don't know, you know, DVD, uh, Blu-ray, whatever, after it came out. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great coming-of-age um, movie. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a departure, and I'm trying to think if there's been another movie where we, we, sat, we had it kind of split up into – three periods of someone's life and it was played by three different actors. Um, you know, plus the fact that it was, uh, an all, uh, I think all, it was all black cast. And, and that was, I think that made it the first all black cast to win best picture. Um, plus it's an LGBT story. So it had a lot of different little unique defining, features for it so i thought it was i thought it was really uh interesting yeah same here i you know coming of a i'm just gonna repeat basically what you said jerry but yeah i thought it was a a just a wonderful coming of age yeah you said coming of age of yeah this kid this person um struggling and wrestling with you know their identity not yeah i get not just i mean just multiple you know their identity their sexuality um with with very few people, very little around, you know, very few people around him that he can actually talk to about it and work through it with, process it with, and um, just seeing the yeah, just just him kind of for the most part, not not completely, but for the most part, kind of on on his own. Um, oh man, what just a yeah, beautiful beautiful film. I I I, I do want to add into that. I don't think you added in Stephen, but I I have to because of. Um, what we talked about with Ma Rainey, the review, the, the, the ratings and stuff on Rotten Tomatoes IMDb, because it has a very similar, <laughs> it is 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. I can much only imagine. Like Ma Rainey's <laughs> and 7.4 on IMDb, very close to Ma Rainey on IMDb. And I, I was like, I have to mention that. Cause yeah, 
It just oh, yeah, it, it stood out because it was eerily similar. To, <laughs> um, but yeah, and another thing. Speaking of another thing, I didn't know until looking into this uh, film. But um, the uh, the person who helped screen uh, Terrell uh, McRaney, he this yeah. was actually a play he had written, and the play was called uh, "In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue," and um, uh, and so I was like, oh, so far in this month we've done three three adaptations of plays. This one feels least like a a, a play. Yeah, I wouldn't have known that. Like, this doesn't feel like it one at all. In fact, it, I feel like there's so little dialogue compared. You know, like our main character doesn't speak a lot, which I mean right. is was is really a testament to their acting abilities. You see so much that he's wrestling with, um, so much internal stuff going on that he doesn't say very you know very little about it. But um, but yeah, I I really this is one of those films I actually saw just for this recording but it's one that i knew you know back when i won i was like oh i really need to see this and i just never i don't know why i never did and so i'm really really glad we're talking about it now because i i i really love this film it's a it's a story the coming of it but a, a, an angle at a, a backdrop you just don't see stories like this and um so i was really it was really really a great film yeah it really is a film to experience mm-hmm. um i i don't um it, it, it the, which wherein li- therein lies the challenge for us tonight is to try to talk about it in a way that would convince people to want to watch it. I guess because it's like because it ah oh man you know I'm glad you bring up the point that you know the protagonist he doesn't speak very much like a lot of a lot of it is just conveyed like through his face and um it's a really yeah, it's, it's just a really impactful film, um, and it's so subtle in a lot of ways, um, and it does address so many issues. Yeah, I did, I did look up Rotten Tomatoes after you brought that up. I was like, oh, I forgot to write that down, <laughs> That's okay. and I'm like, I don't imagine what kind of hot-button issues in this movie could have created such a divide among <laughs> critics and, and users. Listen, there, there is, um, you know with that coming of age story, I think there is so much, um, sorry, hold on. Caught my throat. Um, (laughs) the, I don't know how to articulate what I want to say. I'm kind of at a loss for words. Like this film is, is really, really good. Listen, listen, Mahershala Ali. So, you know, he wins best supporting actor at the Oscars for this. Um, I was telling Jared earlier this week, I, I, I am slowly loving every single thing I've seen him in. Um, you would yeah. think it would be inappropriate for me to make an MCU reference at this point, but he's been cast as Blade, the uh, the vampire hunter uh, that Wesley Snipes last made popular in the MCU, and he'll get his time to do that. But it makes me that much more excited to see how he would do that character mm-hmm. um, after watching him here. Um, and he had also... Um, had a brief role as as a villain in the uh, Netflix Luke Cage series as well, which was really – I wouldn't say he was criminally underused, but he just had a brief time on that show. And I really – everyone I spoke to said they wanted to see more of him. Um, anyway, he is uh, – 
he puts in excellent work for a short amount of time on screen. Um, he has one of those Hannibal Lecter like uh, Academy Award performances where he's only on screen for like less than like around twenty minutes or so and ends mm-hmm. up walking away with a statue for it. Like that's just how how good he is. And he, um, <clears throat> you know, he plays an interesting role because he's a he's a drug dealer um, in the neighborhood. But he's like, <laughs> um, it sounds funny when you say it out loud, but he's like a drug dealer with, with some level of morals. Mm-hmm. Like um, you see him as a dealer who will sell you drugs, but he wants to keep his neighborhood clean of drug usage. Right. You know, like when he finds out that people are using on the street, like he goes to like violently confront them and get them out of the neighborhood. Um, like, you know, get your stuff and get out of here or whatever, you know. And that really speaks to me about um, speaks to me is a funny phrase. Maybe not speaks to me, but like it it um, it reminds me of uh, Tim earlier in the summer. We were talking about the hate you give and um, talking about the pressures of getting into drug the drug business when it feels like there are no economic opportunities and there's no economic freedom. Um, and he really in his limited time on screen struck me as a guy who was doing drug dealing because he felt like that was his best option to live. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I might be looking at him with rose colored glasses in that, in that scenario, but, um, the way he takes Chiron under his wing and like, at the very worst, he compartmentalizes, mm-hmm. I, I would say at least. Like he mm-hmm. recognizes a child's need to be raised and cared for and kept out of these dangerous environments. And um, you know, Sharon's mother is, is a drug addict and, and um, he's treated horribly by everyone around him except for except for Juan, except for Marshall Ali's character. And uh, and, and his girlfriend wife, I don't know, but uh, Janelle Monet, who who was great in this as well for the amount of time she was in it. Janelle Monet, by the way, very underrated actress. I mean, you know, she was a she's a recording artist, but she's been in this, she's been in Hidden Figures, she's been in a few other films. She's quite quite good. Um anyway, uh I think the biggest thing that impacted me the most about Chiron's story from youth to adulthood is the notion um, of the consequences uh, and, and the damage that we do to the psyche of the young, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll keep it to, to the male perspective, but I'm sure it also, it, it also, I'm sure, you know, has a version or a translation of it in the female perspective as well. But the consequences of treating a sensitive boys as soft or, you know, as, as targets for bullying and ridicule and stuff because, because they're different. Um, and you know, like he's already being called homophobic slurs by, by his friends and stuff because, because he's not a jerk as a kid, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. And he's quiet. Like, and, and he asks Juan, like, what is that about? And new and Juan for, for his, that is one of my favorite scenes. I don't want to. I just want to say I, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Yeah, gives an incredibly nuanced answer to that yes. question for a drug dealer. I'll yep. say, like for a drug dealer, for a human being. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, he he explains what that f word means, um, 
but he also immediately says like, that's not the kind of thing you even should even be worried about at your age right now. Like, you know, like, which I'm glad he said that because I, I will say this and it's not just, um, I think there's a lot of pressure when children are children trying to like, trying to, um, it's, it's like the flip side of them calling him that, that word and saying that he's soft and all that other stuff. And, and trying to pigeonhole someone into an identity based on their personality. You know what I mean? Like, I don't believe that personality and, and, um, gender or sexual identities are, are, are one-to-one ratios, you know, you know, how else do we, uh, how else do you explain Gordon Ramsay? I mean, you know, I'm just saying like, you know, like some, he, I'm sure he grew up cooking, you know, like that's, that's okay. <laughs> um, anyway, but whatever, but, uh, you know, poor joke maybe, but, <laughs> but the, I, I, I just say that to, to me that like the, I think this film does a really good job of just um, really shining a light on this total misrepresentation of, of, of him as a boy. And he's, and and it takes away like every safe place he has, you know, and like, where, where does he have to turn? And, and yeah. even more so than him coming to terms with, with who he is as a character, even more tra- tragic than the path he takes to get there is that he's just really alone. Mm-hmm. Um, for all of it, and uh, except in the very beginning when Juan takes him under his wing, and I gotta say I'm I, I missed it. I, I I was keeping kind of one eye on the movie today, so um, I think once the film transitions from Sharon as a kid from little you know Act One into Sharon Act Two when he's a teenager, Juan's just out of the picture, and I, I didn't recall the narrative explaining him uh, anything happening to him at that point did and i might have missed it they 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 reference um the funeral Mm -hmm. and i might have missed it this time i thought i remembered from the first time or, or maybe i read this somewhere i don't know that basically it's implied that the drug world catches up to him and yeah. he gets killed. But I so don't remember all, all that I saw from this viewing was them referencing the funeral. Um, I don't. Re- and so I don't remember if they um, do address something about that in there or if I read it somewhere else that that it was the drug world catching up with him and getting him killed. Gotcha. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a logical progression. I don't know. They had referenced Teresa is his. uh girlfriend uh and in the second act and stuff so she was at least still a part of his life even if she wasn't on screen anymore um but yeah you know the this movie goes from from childhood bullying into into high school bullying and it's just um oh man you know it's it's a simple simple constructs and 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 um and realities like peer pressure and um I don't know, man. Like as a, <laughs> it's funny as an adult, I don't know, looking back on this, I can remember what it was like to be a shy kid in high school and, yeah. and the, the fear of fighting back of you were a bully and being bullied. Sorry. Um, and stuff, but also as an adult too, like, you know, you see him getting picked on by these guys. I'm like, you know what? Just like 
jump on this clown, man. Like, what, right. what do you, you know, like, like this guy's an idiot, but you know, and, 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 you know, it's, it's so, it's, it's tragic that so many, so many kids could, can't see that, you know, when they're in that yeah. moment, I guess. Although <laughs> at the end of act two, Sharon does reach his breaking point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in quite a way, I mean, we could replay that scene with Jim Ross on commentary and it, <laughs> and it would be appropriate. Um, just, you know, <laughs> he's got a family. Um, he's broken in half. The carnage. Oh God, Terrell's down. Um, he just full on breaks a chair over his back. <laughs> and, 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 um, I, that's how I know, by the way, that, um, we have an impressive, piece of filmmaking or television or whatever it is when moments like that, which are unabashedly poor moral decisions still have this like cathartic feeling within you. Mm. Um, I can only, I always go back to two moments. Uh, one is the ending of the movie seven and the other is, um, uh, a scene from the third season of lost when Sawyer, uh, finally, Meets some meets an antagonist he's been dying to meet his whole life. Um, those are moments where logically and rationally, I'm like, this is not the right choice. This is not the right choice, and it happens anyway. And you're like, yeah, do it, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a weird feeling um, to, to wrestle with. But um, man, it's just, I don't know. Is it, it was interesting that this movie, like, you know, goes into three different phases and stuff. And I, and I just don't have a very linear feeling about this movie. Like, cause so much, so much of those emotions he goes through and so many of these themes kind of travel in between these, these three phases of his life. Um, but yeah, I think that was, that was, um, I, I know I, I just did uh, just an, an awful, awful job of explaining it just now. But, um, this, this idea of how he, was, you know, categorized and, and just sort of predetermined by his surroundings as soft, by, by his own mother, you know, by, by his, if you want to call them friends, by, by his, by his peers, I guess, you know, as, as being weak and stuff like that. When, when the fact yeah. of the matter is, it's like to survive in that environment demands more strength than many people can, can imagine. Um, and the fact that, that he even does that, you know, as a child, that he has even survival instincts and stuff, you know, in in the midst of the, the definite amount of trauma he continues to experience, uh, his whole life, uh, and everything is just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's amazing. And and, and it's so, um, it's so infuriating to, (laughs) you think about this, like, like Tim, you were, um, this is, this is a little off topic, but I, but I promise (laughs) I'll bring it back again. Um, you, you were posting about, um, some, some news stories that are developing now about, um, opening opportunities for refugees to come, Mm -hmm. um, to come to America, right. That have been blocked before and stuff. and, And these changes that are happening, you know, you think about the obstacles and the hardships that, families like that have to overcome to get here and 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 for them to overcome all that and then be be belittled by something as as ignorant as speak english yeah. or or some or speak american you know I, i'm i'm sorry my my rural southern accent comes out when i do that but <laughs> it's low hanging fruit so what are you going to do and let's face it it probably happens in georgia so yeah. <laughs> um it happens in parts of north carolina i know that as well and you know you get 
these South Park caricatures of mm-hmm. people trying to demonize those people who have yeah. already been through way more than some of these, you know, flag flying truck driving oh, yeah. people mm-hmm. could, could imagine having to endure, oh, yeah. you know, you know, some people can't even be bothered to wear a mask in public and they think that's the highest level of persecution and they have not known, you know, and it seems like I'm really, you know, being antagonistic and, and, and picking right now, but comparing that with, with literally having to like fight for your life mm. and, and survive the, the escaping of a war torn place or living in a highly dangerous and hostile environment. It's, it's so infuriating to be an outsider and look at that. Like is this in this film, knowing what Chiron has endured and to see him just be belittled because because he's, I mean, listen, he, he is wrestling with a lot of things, but, you know, you know, before he even, you know, actualizes his, his sexual identity, he, he's being labeled as like soft or sensitive or, you know, being, you know, using homophobic slurs against him and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and he's minding his own business, you know, like he's not, yeah. he's not doing things that warrant any of that kind of bullying or anything like that. And so to see to see these 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 sort of uneducated attacks on someone who has already earned more admiration for what they have endured mm-hmm. um by by such thoughtless uh bullying is is just so aggravating yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was like, when I was a kid, I was, I mean, I related to a lot of this movie. Um, but I mean, in, in particular in the childhood stuff, like until I was, I don't know, maybe, you know, 12 or 13, I was always the smallest kid in my class. And so, I mean, I, you know, I ended up growing up to, you know, roughly be average size. I'm about with shoes, about six feet tall. Uh, like in, in basketball, you know, you add two inches. So if I was playing basketball still, you know, I could be like six, two, but, um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I mean, like regardless of any other factors, even if you're just small, uh, you know, at least, uh, I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm not a kid growing up now, so I don't know how much progress we've made, but, you know, especially like in the eighties as a kid, I'm sure in the nineties, probably early two thousands, if you're just small, like uh, immediately there's a, there's a target on your back, um, regardless of anything else. So, yeah. yeah. And that was, that wasn't that his nickname or what was his nickname? Small? Little, 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 little yeah. right. Sorry. Yeah. Close enough. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, your size, your temperament, mm-hmm. your, um, keeping to yourself, um, all, all those kinds of things. And, and I will say, you know, having been the new kid in school, uh, multiple times in my life, like that's another thing. Like you're, you're immediately different. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, um, I thought back to high school. Um, I started high school, um, like so many people do in ninth grade. Uh, no, I, uh, <laughs> I moved to a new town in ninth grade. Um, <laughs> little, Little did I really, you know, count the cost of the decision I was making, but I enrolled in a high school that was a K through 12 school. So not only did I 
come into high school as like the kid from out of town. I entered a class. First of all, it's an incredibly small private school. My graduating class was 20. Um, yeah, yeah, my graduating class was, was 20 people. Um, and 18 of those 20 people had been together since kindergarten <laughs> yeah. in the same class with one another. So like, I mean, it's like walking in. I don't know. I imagine it's probably like walking into the expanse when you haven't seen any episodes and everyone else has been watching it for the entire run um, or something like that. Uh, but but anyway, it's a very isolating feeling. Right. So, you know, to to be there. And so, of course, you know, when you're isolated, you also become a target um, and, and you don't know the the uh, the economy you know, of language and and. and and references of things and, and the sort of unspoken hierarchy of things. And so like, you don't know when people are just trying to be friendly in that antagonistic sort of way that teenagers Mm -hmm. do when they're really stupid, you know, um, and, and all these sorts of things. It's a very uncomfortable experience and you can't, and for me, like I couldn't disappear in the crowd because there was no crowd, you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was just all very weird, you know, and um, I, I did not have to thankfully have to grapple with any of the issues that that Chiron does here in this movie. But I do identify with like the the loneliness and the um, the discomfort of of, um, you know, being the the other in that situation, I guess. Uh, mine was very much a, a lesser um, consequence uh, of that th- than than what's going on here, but uh, yeah, you know, it's just ah, uh, oh, man, it's just so heartbreaking to see him have to go through, you know. And it doesn't doesn't help that the actor, at least for for me, the, the actor who plays teenage Chiron looks a lot like my son. Um, in in the way that he walks and like kind of carries himself and like a little well, as to say the way. Uh, <laughs> Not so much anymore. My, my my son is starting to become a little more comfortable with the surroundings, at least. So he's he's got a little bit more of a swagger to to his step than he did. But at least when he was first getting acclimated and stuff, and it just makes me like, oh gosh. Yeah, I felt yeah. like like all three actors in the different time periods did. I think Tim mentioned it before. We mentioned it before. Like such a good job of communicating so much through just nonverbals because he is such yeah. a, a quiet character all the way through life all and, the way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you would think that there would be like one of those three periods where like, uh, oh, there's going to be like a little bit of a drop off here. This one wasn't quite as good as the other two portray. They were all three. I thought very good. Absolutely. Um, I agree. Yeah, and sure. And, you know, and, and it's interesting to see, you know, then in, in the adult life, I don't know exactly how old he is. Um, and I looked at, I tried to look it up to see like if there was a, an age more or less given and, and I didn't see it at least on a couple of sites like Wikipedia or whatever, but to see like, you know, in a lot of ways, he's just sort of been stuck in life. Like he hasn't really moved forward in some ways he has, like he's, he's now a big dude. Like he's a big buff, buff dude. And that's probably overcompensating for, 
what he was always called and, and, and treated, um, as a kid. Yeah. But it, on a, on a personal level, like he, he hasn't really experienced a ton of, of growth in, in terms of you, you get to see some of that towards the end of this, uh, t- uh towards the end of this movie with a scene with his mother and, um, you know, a scene with, with Kevin, um, but you just yeah. see how he's kind of been stuck mm-hmm. in life and uh, probably, uh, you know, a lot of what's played into that is just being so shy and quiet and not being one to yeah. initiate some sort of change. It's just yeah. kind of what he's known right down to the fact that he's then dealing drugs in the same way that, that's what he knew from the only mentor figure that he had as a child. So. Yeah. Um, you know, Trevante Rhodes was the actor who played the adult version of Sharon who goes by black. Um, and I got to give her so much credit to him. He never looks, you know, you talk about, you know, the, the physical transformation, you know, of him being big, but he never even looks comfortable in his skin. Like True. the whole movie, you know, and I think, and that's, that is not easy to convey, I think, in, in such a, such a dialogueless film. Um, and he never looks settled, you know, maybe until the very, very end, like you, you see maybe a spark of it. Um, and he, um, I, I think about that and that where Sharon at 16, his story arc ends with his, you know, WWE moment with, with the bully in school. Um, but he's sent off to juvenile detention mm-hmm. and Lord knows how much more bullying he endured there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not explored in the movie at all. At least I don't re- recollect that being conversation other, other than him mentioning to get when he reconnects with Kevin as an adult mentioning that he had been, that he went straight there after, you know, uh, that incident. And so, you know, you just, I'm thinking about like season three of Cobra Kai, Jared, like, you know, when Robbie is being bullied every single day and, <laughs> yeah. and he knew karate, you know? So like, uh, so like I, I can only imagine what, you know, cause, cause I think about the heart of Chiron, and also, you know, he's still this skinny little kid when he's being put there. Like, he's he would be a massive target in a in an environment like that. And he's not someone who really needs to be in that place. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. like, um, but that is. And I think about that, and I think about how, especially how black kids are treated in the public school system um, by authority figures and stuff. When these moments like this act out, and you, you know, we have the the hindsight and the retrospect and the context of, of watching this through the lens of a movie. And we know why he did that. Like, and we know that he didn't have anybody in his corner and like all he really needed was a mentor figure to reach out to him. Like he's just not someone who knows how to take that first step and connect with others. And even if he did connect with somebody, he wouldn't know how to initiate that, you know? And, and he's a passive personality and he's had no, Intimacy in any context, right? You know, um, whether familial, romantic, whatever, um, in, in his life, and so, um, 
institutionalizing him is is not going to do anything to to fix what's really wrong there to fix what's really broken and so um you know i i think it's 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 an excellent portrayal by Rhodes, the uh the the adult uh actor to to really show that in him that like he's still he's still lost you know mm-hmm. out there even as an adult and and um and why wouldn't he be if that was his life you know and um you know, it's just, uh, huh, it's a lot. That was a, what a powerful scene with him and his mother in rehab and stuff too. And, and that's such a, you know, he goes to visit her. She's in rehab. She, you know, she's been like a crack addict his whole life, basically. Um, and, and if he went away while he was 16, she was still an addict then mm-hmm. who was, who was awful to him. And she, has turned her life around and, or, or is at least working on it, you know, on the right path to things and recognizes what she's done wrong and stuff. And here he is holding the emotional bag mm-hmm. of all the trauma right. that has been inflicted upon him with no resolution. And she has, I wouldn't say that she has moved on, but she is free from it. You can tell she is free from the pain that she's been carrying. And she, so she owns the things that she did wrong and she is, you know, she's rehabilitated, mm-hmm. basically, and he's not. And and she's the reason that he needs it in the first place. And it's just such a painful scene. Uh, and, and it is just the harsh reality, especially, you know, for, for a viewer like me who believes in, you know, grace and, and mercy and forgiveness. These are the true-to-life situations where those beliefs are put to the test, like, because there's no more justifiable situation to not forgive someone than, I mean, there probably are, but you know, there's not a lot of more justifiable situations to not forgive someone than, than, than what Chiron was looking at when he was visiting his mother, realizing how screwed up his own life was. And the reason it was so screwed up, or at least the source of it was his mother's failure to do her job as a mother from his childhood all the way up till he was 16. Like you can only imagine even if she had been supportive of supportive of him inside the home and not been another antagonist, another bully mm-hmm. um, uh, at him, would he have made different decisions when, when faced with that um, uh, those situations in school, um, you, you know, and, and obviously you get the notion that she never came to see him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when he was uh, in juvenile detention and and living in, in in Atlanta, and so it's a really bitter pill to swallow. But I think you know if the, if, if you ascribe to that, and yeah, you know, I do. Um, it's one that has to be taken, though, and it's such a I don't know, it's such a uh, such a real uh, conflict to dissect, you know, in that scene. And then and that maybe that's really, really powerful. And, you know, the more I think about it, I mean, <laughs> Viola Davis was, was really a heavy hitter in fences, but, but I gotta say coming, being exposed to Naomi Harris the way I have, which is pretty much through this podcast, like thinking of the girl from 28 days later doing this, right. Like, and she was great in 28 days later, but it's just a whole different kind of movie. Right. Yeah. Um, thinking about her doing this and she's like, she's money penny in the, uh, in the, in the Daniel Craig, uh, James Bond franchise as well. And, um, 
so I'm like, man, it's like she's really more usually more action woman than she is drama woman. So this is a real achievement, you know, of her performance as well that I think is, is it feels like it's completely ignored because Mahershala Ali was the only person I even knew about from this movie. And he's in the movie for like 20 minutes. Right. It'd be like, I'm going to watch silence of the lambs tonight. Oh, Anthony Hopkins is in it. <laughs> and then he's like, no, sorry. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty wild um, how oh, for, for this being, <laughs> it's just the story. It, isn't it kind of weird in a meta way? Like this movie is so overlooked. Like it was a best picture winner that didn't even get announced as best picture. Right. Mm, yeah. um, it was overlooked for La La Land, even if that was just a mistake. The majority of this cast never gets talked about. The award winner for this movie is barely in the movie. I mean, he's 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 awesome. He's great. I love Marshall Lee, but it's just so interesting how that matches kind of the theme of the movie that Sharon is is overlooked and neglected <laughs> his whole life as well. And yeah. so is this movie. Like, and, and not to mention, Tim said, you know, this was based on a play. The play never got made. Mm-hmm. It, it went right, unproduced. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, this is like the overlooked engine that could. Like this whole the whole universe surrounding this story is is uh is pretty yeah. pretty wild when you think about it uh, on that level. Anyways, yeah. uh, a great film. It's it's hard to put into words. Yeah. Um, I find it kind of amusing, and maybe maybe this isn't funny. So I apologize if it's not. But I think about you know it, it, Jared. You mentioned this was the first LGBT movie to win Best Picture. Um, obviously. The well, there are, there have been a couple in the past few decades, but the but the big one that everyone was expecting was Brokeback Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, was the year it lost to Crash, which was a movie, you know, with a lot of black people in it. But it was a movie, you know, about racism um, and stuff. And so you have this movie about, um, you know, uh, the life of of um, the suppression of, of homosexuality, um, and a movie about the consequences of dealing with people in, in racial inequity and stuff. And mm. then you put those things together and then you get moonlight, which ends up winning instead. Um, right. so it's, it's, it's interesting to me that, uh, that this is the one that, that makes that achievement, um, versus some of the other ones. So, um, because I remember when, when crash one man, people were not happy about that. <laughs> um, I'd have to go back and watch crash again. Um, I, I might feel differently, but at the time I was like, was everybody so upset about it? I thought it was really good. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> um, but I was a different person back then too. So who knows? Um, yeah. Moonlight. Um, excellent film yeah. available on Netflix. Um, it's, it's highly, it's a very understated film, but it's, it's very powerful. Um, in, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, um, I, I would, I would contend that it is, um, it is more than what it is sold on. Yeah. Um, I'll say that, you know, yeah. I think it's certainly, I'm sure that it is relevant in all the cultures that it is, um, advocating for, uh, you know, it's, it's advocating on multiple levels, you know, mm-hmm. um, and we've discussed that, but, and, and, and um, I hope that that would not be a thing that keeps people from watching it for themselves and, and, and pulling what they can from it. But I think this movie speaks to a lot of things that don't get talked about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with, with uh, 
the formation of, of human identity and what are the contributing factors to that? How important is relationship on any level with, with, uh, with, um, being therapeutic in, in a, I don't mean this in a theological sense, but like a salvation for people, like, like a good, I mean, I can tell you guys, and I think I've said this and in, in jokey sort of ways, but you know, y'all's friendship has been a, a buoy for me in the past year here. Like it is, it is depressing to be in your house all day long, uh, all year long, whether you're an introvert or extrovert. And when you're trying to live, uh, and make healthy decisions, you know, in regards to like pandemics and stuff like that. So, you know, relationship is important to keep, to keep lifelines open with people. And this is a story of a kid who had a lot of that taken away from him. And the, and the ones that should have been there for him weren't with, with very few exceptions. Um, and so it's a very interesting peek into that and what are the, what are the outcomes of that when, when you don't have it and, and the ones that you have, what effect do they have on you? What do they take away from you? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right in saying that it's, you know, it would get attention for being, you know, the first film with, you know, an all black cast to win an Oscar or the first, um, LGBT themed film to win an Oscar. But I think it is more than those things. And I think, you know, I, I think that works both like, you know, I think everything works both for and against it in that that's why it, it gets attention. You know, that's what made it unique and allowed yeah. it to, to get this win. But at the same time, like it's so outside the box on so many different levels that people are, probably going to be like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, just in the, in the fact that, you know, again, you're looking through three different time periods of someone's life played by three different actors. I mean, you know, just start with that before you get to anything else. And yeah. then, and then it's, it's almost like, you know, you, you've got the Venn, the Venn diagrams, like what's the audience and you start making those diagrams and the, where they all come together is like a really, on the surface, like a really narrow sliver of, of people. Um, but if you sort of ignore all that and, and think about the, the more of what's in in the meat of the story, it is a, it is a pretty interesting film. There is a lot of intersectionality at play there. And that's not a word I get to use a lot on night cheese, but, um, (laughs) there, you know, but, but it is like, you know, what is it? What is it like to be a kid who's gay in high school? But but not only that, what's it like to be a black kid who's gay in high school? Like, right. and, and that's, I, I was just going to say, like, black. Uh, I'm treading carefully here because obviously, yeah, I I'm think you're going to say, I think you're going to say the same thing I was going to say. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. Black black male culture, right? Um, their aggression and listen, white male culture has it too. But mm-hmm. I think. Um, I think that black culture has had has already had so much to overcome and fight against it. Right. The perception of weakness and, and, and like uh, there's, there's so many more educated people that can speak on this than me, but like, but there is something specific about black male culture that, that, um, that suppresses weakness in any form, particularly of a sexual nature. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's rampant throughout the culture. I mean, there, if you, if you're, if you're deeply invested in it, which I can't say that I really am, but, but I know that there are 
sort of like sort of like popcorn, just like incidental changes that are that are coming up out of that culture now that are changing that landscape a little bit. But the predominant feeling there is is suppression and antagonism towards towards that kind of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah, how much harder would it be for a Chiron or somebody else to live in to live in the projects to 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 be bullied at high school uh, again be bullied at high school already just you know because I'm not exactly sure what time period this was supposed to be like a modern day thing or yeah I was I was a little I bit really clear on that either but if we're going to say that his adulthood is modern day then his teenage years would probably be right around the time we were in high school mm-hmm. or so, or, or a little bit after. And, you know, gay was, and, and homophobic slurs were, were just um, commonplace derogatory terms without mm-hmm. even necessarily an intention of inferring homosexuality on somebody. So right. here we got, here we got a kid who's already in the closet, you know, um, to borrow a phrase, being having all those insults hurled on him with most of his bullies, not even knowing that that's true about him. Right. Um, and so he's already being bullied for other reasons. Like he doesn't want another reason to come out. Uh, no pun intended, but, um, so yeah, like he's just, uh, Oh man, it's just a hard light. You know, you just want to give him a hug, you know, you, you, you want another wand to show up for him. Or right. like, like <laughs> yeah. dude, you need a Miyagi or, or a wand or a friend or just somebody to be there for just, just to be there for you. Right. Um, and, and, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful story about, um, the ups and downs of, of that. Um, yeah. yeah. Don't know what else I can say. And we have certainly <laughs> gone, <laughs> gone for a while, but Hey, you know, I was worried. We, we paired these two films together because we, because <laughs> we didn't think we'd be able to talk much about them, <laughs> uh, at the time. And, and, and here we are. <laughs> yeah. So, so shows what I know. Um, I'm just going to take uh, just a, a little, uh, you guys want to say anything else before I like clean up a little bit on trivia things and stuff. Tim. Oh, I don't really, have... man. I mean, I feel like you guys said it so well. I I will say this will be the last thing. And I'm, I'm afraid to say too much about each thing, but one thing that stood out to me, and I don't know if I'm like giving more weight to something that maybe isn't there. I don't know. But one thing I do notice in each of the three kind of acts, you know, of his life, um, the scenes involving ocean or water being really powerful. Um, mm-hmm. I'll kind of want to leave it at that. I don't know. But um, I just remember having some, each in each one having a significance. I, the third one, it was more kind of seeing it and then kind of hearing it. But I don't know. It just like the moments where he does have like contact or connection. Anyway, so uh but I, th- I thought it really stood out, and I could be overthinking it, but it was a, it was interesting to me. So that's a, that's an astute observation, Tim, um, because that's a, that was actually an intentional choice on the act of the filmmakers, um, with, as was water being a theme um, nice. in it. So if uh, if you'll indulge me, I'll see <laughs> if I can uh, read. Let's see. Um, this is from the Wikipedia page, so um, 
bear with me. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, water is often seen as cleansing and transformative, and this is apparent in the film as well. Uh, whether it be him swimming in the ocean, by the way, Mahershala Ali, uh, when he is teaching Little how to swim, he is actually teaching Little how to swim. Little did oh, not wow. swim in that scene. So oh, it's wow. another little tender moment there Man. between a, a would-be father and son figure. It's pretty sweet. Um, throughout his life, and, and by the way, I would – Never mind. Ali has got a very calming, soothing voice. That's mm-hmm. that's all I was going to say. Um, throughout his life, hold on. Mm-hmm. However, it is notable that water is most seen in the film in times of immense transition for Sharon. Uh, throughout his life, Sharon resorts to water to bring him comfort, uh, e- um, i.e. taking a bath when his mother's not home or swimming in the ocean with Juan. In the scene where Juan taught Little to swim, he explained to him the duality of water in relation to black existence, a concept addressed in Natasha. Uh, um, I'm sorry. I apologize, Miss Tinsley, for butchering your name. Um, Omiseki Natasha is Tinsley's Black Atlantic, Queer Atlantic. Uh, the ocean is like a cross current, as Tinsley says, that can simultaneously be a place of inequality and exploitation, as well as beauty and resistance. Tinsley describes how, quote, black queerness itself comes from a co- becomes a cross current through which to view hybrid resistant subjectivities, and perhaps black queers really have no ancestry except the black water. The water is either an environment that can destroy Chiron or allow him to triumph, and throughout the movie we mm. see Tri- Chiron using the water to cope and find himself. Wow. I could pretend like I wrote all that myself, but <laughs> and that, everybody would that. see right through that. <laughs> and that even reminded me of some other water elements i forgot i completely forgot like the bath and then him putting his face in the water like in the sinks yeah wash his face like at the beginning of every phase or like at the end of one of the phases it's like a transition and uh so i totally forgot about those two but yeah the the moments like where he's being taught how to swim and then in the second one when he's finally kind of figuring out his sexual identity and then the third He's kind of reconnecting. And at that point, I think he only kind of sees it off in the distance. But um, when he's having kind of his last interaction before the film ends, like you can hear the waves. And I just remember being like, they don't put that in there just just for fun. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and then the the last the last scene, I guess, is of him as a boy, you know, thinking back going down there. Oh, man. Um. So uh, in an interview, Barry Jenkins said that the three actors who play Chiron never met uh, during production. He (laughs) wanted each of them to build their own persona of Chiron during their respective segments with no influence from the other portrayals. Um, He did the same thing to all three of the Kevin actors as well. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty amazing that they managed to maintain the same semblance of personality. I feel like that's a bad, that was a bad idea um, (laughs) on Barry Jenkins's part, but it really, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's kind of like a little theology joke. It's like Matthew, Mark and Luke just managed to kind of write the same gospel. Um, you know, despite not interacting with one another too much. Anyway, sorry. Um, next up. Okay. I thought this was, um, this was pretty, pretty interesting. 
both uh, director Barry Jenkins and Terrell Alvin McCraney's vision was pretty clear and singular in that both men grew up in the same Liberty City neighborhood of Miami with mothers who had both struggled with drug addiction. Roughly 80% of the film was shot on location here, one of the most poverty-stricken areas in the United States. Initially, the production was apprehensive about safety issues until word got out that Jenkins was from the neighborhood. And then everything changed for the better. The locals couldn't have been more welcoming and cooperative, Naomi Harris said. She said she said she'd never felt so appreciated and at ease mm-hmm. on a film set during the shoot, uh, um, which is which is really cool when you think about, you know, I'm reading too much into this, but, you know, you think about what Chiron needed so much was connection. And as soon as people realize that closeness uh, from, from Jenkins and stuff, they're like, no, you're 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 one of us, you know, come on in and. And um, everything will be great. Um, let's see. It was shot in 25 days. Um, pretty impressive. And it was, especially with the small budget, I guess, 25 days is probably all they had to work with. <laughs> um, okay. So, yeah. Um, any any last words for Moonlight, you guys, uh, before we wrap it up tonight? Um, I don't know. Just, uh, yeah, good uh, – good movie um you know in in thinking about like linking it to ma rainey's black bottom and connecting the the levy character you know you could almost do like a moonlight version of his character showing like what he went through as a child at as an adolescent and then how things turned out for him as an adult mm-hmm. uh versus what happened with Chiron, you know, um, I don't know. I just, I sometimes think of that in terms of like how people just break differently, uh, over, you know, having dealt with injustice or, um, whatever. So, um, that's all I got. Mm. That's good. Tim. I, I think I'm good. I think we hit just about all of it. All right. Well, I want to thank you guys for joining us for um, our latest Black History Month episode for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Moonlight. Um, Feel free to follow us on Instagram. Um, Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you'd like or a rating. Um, Reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook uh, if you want to hear any particular things for us to cover. In the near future, we're always open to new ideas. Uh, Next week um, or next episode, whenever that comes, uh, we will be covering Judas and the Black Messiah, which I'm highly anticipating. I'm also expecting it to be a little more action driven um, (laughs) than the last few uh, that we have spoken. It's not based on a play as far as I know. Uh, So we'll we'll see what it brings. And then uh, also our last week of Black History Month, uh, we'll be doing an international film, Queen of Katwe from uh, the Disney film about a a young lady who's a grows to be a chess champion. So anyway, uh, more on that in a few weeks. And uh, Um, We want to thank you for joining us tonight. And until next time, keep working on your night cheese. There is a lot of intersectionality at play there. And that's not a word I get to use a lot on night cheese.